Today's episode is sponsored by Morgan Stanley. Just 30 years ago, renewable energy seemed futuristic. Now, it's a practical way to power cities. Morgan Stanley explores the economics driving the industry and what it means for investors. Hear the full podcast at morganstanley.com slash podcast. Morgan Stanley & Co., LLC, member SIPC. Opening bell in about 20 seconds. Let me just set the stage for you. Money, money, I want more money. You cannot have it all. This whole system is too confusing. Hi, I'm Ben White, and this is Politico Money. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Politico Money podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. This week, I spoke with former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew at his offices in Midtown Manhattan. We get into the Trump White House, the tax bill, what it was like for him when it became clear on election night that Hillary Clinton was going to lose and Trump was going to win, as well as the market's exuberance under the Trump administration and what could bring it all tumbling down. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. And thanks, as ever, for listening to the podcast. If you're enjoying it, please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Rate us and write a written review. Uh, without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Treasury Secretary Jack Lew. All right, let's rewind to election night 2016. Um, obviously, you know, you uh, were hoping for a win by Secretary Clinton. You've uh, worked with her and known her for a long time. Um, what was that night like for you when it went from looking like we're definitely getting a Hillary Clinton presidency to, oh, my God, Donald Trump is going to win the White House? Like, where were you? Uh, and and what, what did it feel like? Um, I generally spend election night privately. I'm not a big believer in being in uh, celebratory settings when the outcome is a pretty binary one, usually. Um, I had a bad feeling before the election. I decided to be in Washington, not in uh, New York. I voted absentee because I just thought I had to kind of be there if something unsettling happened and I needed to be part of a— You mean if the market reaction? If there was a market reaction. And uh, you know, I, I, um, I kind of early in the evening saw counties that um, troubled me I did not treat it as a done deal. Um, and, you know, look, the fact that President Obama went to Michigan on a, on a rather urgent basis just a few days before the election was a bit of a canary in the coal mine that things weren't where they needed to be. Um, you know, I went into the work the next day. Um, I, I went to the White House to the morning meeting. I went to the Treasury to the morning meeting. And I tried to kind of buoy people's spirits with a bit of a historical recollection that a lot of them who were younger than me um, hadn't experienced uh, crushing election outcomes. And the country survived. We survived. The pendulum swung back. Um, you take two steps forward. You take a step back. You take two steps forward again. And, you know, I think I actually kind of gave people a bit of hope that it was not going to be as bad as they thought it was. Um, I'm not sure, looking back a year, that I could have imagined the year we've just been through. But I still fundamentally believe that the country bounces back. The country doesn't just go in one direction. 
and that the American people are good and they're saying things that do not comport with their values and then in the long run will not um, make that the future of the country. Does that mean there won't be damage uh, in the meantime? There, I think there's damage every day. Um, I also, you know, worry about kind of taking the the cork out of the bottle and letting things that were just not acceptable in um, kind of public discourse or private discourse and, and you know out there things that are hateful things that are just wrong things that are if they're tolerated can spread more easily than what specifically are you thinking about there um, in terms of you know what the president has said or people who support him have said uh, you know, the Charlottesville I, thing I, like I, what what do you think are the most look, Char- damaging Charlottesville things? is emblematic in a in, in, in a very powerful way but it doesn't stand alone um, I mean the the idea that it's okay to say things like you know the people in the streets in Charlottesville were saying, or what the president said when he said there are good people on both sides. The idea that there are good people on both sides of that situation is not something that can be accepted. And I don't think most Republicans accept it any more than I do. It is something that if it gets into the kind of bloodstream that it's okay to say things like that, you worry about how easily that's reversed. Yeah, and what about the sort of constant vilification of the press? I mean, I, I don't necessarily love all the journalists tooting their own horn, all that kind of stuff were, you know, uh, indispensable. But in, in many ways, the free press is a fundamental pillar of um, America's... Founders, uh, founders yeah, certainly believe that. They certainly believed it, and they kind of enshrined it in our founding document. Um, and he, you know, he's holding a fake news awards this week. He's constantly beating up on, you know, CNN, the New York Times, the Washington Post, anybody who dares report on his uh, Politico, uh, report on his administration in a way that he doesn't like, he labels fake. And I, I think the majority of Americans don't buy into it, but there is a core group of his supporters that absolutely do buy it. And I, one of the things I worry most about is kind of the erosion of, in faith of any kind of established basis of fact uh, and um, unbiased reporting on institutions of power. Like, how, how much do you think that he's eroding that kind of... Uh, Look, I, I think that in some ways it's a corollary of taking the cork out of the, the, the bottle. I mean, um, if you look at what's at the root of hate, um, it's usually manufactured um, information. Um, you know, you create enemies it, it, and, and uh, you create myths. Um, I think the idea that we would um, accept that there are different facts is not an acceptable way to proceed. Um, there are facts and there are opinions. And as Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, you're entitled to your own opinions, but you, you know, no, sir, you're not entitled to your own facts. If different opinions are being broadcast as competing facts and different groups only read the facts that they agree with, that's not good for democracy either, because ultimately the way we end up resolving differences is uh, by having an understanding and, uh, and, and not um, uh, having every issue be one of, of um, kind of venal choices between the good and the bad. I want to go back to the election night um, for just a second. And uh, the next day when you went into Treasury and the White House and trying to reassure people that, you know, the world wasn't ending and that there was a more long term future for the ideas they believed in. What, what was the president like um, in the in the day after uh, Secretary Clinton lost? Like, how did he react? He, he was he was not surprisingly in a kind of similar place, uh, you know, where I was. Um, 
you know, I'm I'm told that what I said at the morning meeting got repeated to him, uh, and and was went into his thinking about how he would um, would share his views. Um, I saw him later in the day. Um, you know, his his philosophy, and he says this himself uh, regularly, is that you know there's a long arc to history. You're making progress. You don't always go in the right direction. You know, you, 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 but, but you're trending in the right direction. We've made a lot of progress. We'll make more progress. You know, there's, you, you, you've got to kind of stay, stay engaged mm-hmm. uh, to keep pushing forward. Um, you know, the, 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 the levers you have to push forward when, uh, you're in the, in the minority are, um, are much reduced. Um, you know, so right now is a very frustrating time for people who would like to make a difference. But I do believe that whether it's the midterm elections or the, you know, election after that, the pendulum will swing back. And uh, that's why ultimately what's important is that you stay true to ideas and facts and keep moving the debate forward. What you can't do, and I've repeated this uh, numerous times to groups of young people in particular, you can't abandon the field. Mm -hmm. You can't get discouraged and say, I can't stomach X, Y, or Z. You have to stay engaged, and you have to take on the ideas, and you have to do it respectfully. Uh, I don't think that we should turn everyone who's working in this administration into kind of an enemy. Uh, I have certainly not done that. I've tried to, whenever anyone asks, be helpful in offering advice. I think people should. I've encouraged people to serve when they've called me and asked, uh, should I serve in this administration? Has has Treasury Secretary Mnuchin reached out to you at all? Did you have any, um, do you have any discussions with him? Has he uh, asked for your advice on anything? We talk occasionally. Occasionally. Yeah. Okay. Um, so again, on the election night, you stayed in Washington concerned about market reaction. There was a lot of speculation before the election that markets would react positively. If secretary Clinton won, they might tank if, um, Trump won, given that he was such an unknown factor and he had views on, uh, trade policy and protectionism that, uh, corporate America might not like that markets might not like, uh, you know, and even I wrote some of the stories suggesting his election could be bad for markets. The opposite turned out to be true. Uh, the market initially went down and then went way higher on Trump's, uh, election. And as he likes to, uh, take credit for on Twitter on a nearly da- daily basis, it has gone up quite a lot since, uh, his election day. Uh, and market is, setting new records every day, now over 25,000. How much credit does he deserve for that? Look, I I don't mean this uh, to sound uh, ungenerous, but he inherited a pretty strong economy. I mean, uh, he he didn't, he he described it in very different terms, but um, it was a, 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 a recovery that was well underway, stable growth, markets were doing well. Um, and he was coming in promising to do things, as the tax bill did, that the corporate world very much wanted. Um, you know, I, I think that there's no question that some of the market uh, movement over the last year has been pricing in uh, the expectation that there would be a tax cut. Um and that has supported a, a continued strong market. The thing that I kind of don't have a good explanation for is the tolerance the markets have developed for uncertainty that used to rattle uh, markets more than it does now. 
I mean, are you thinking specifically like uncertainty over well, North Korea? I, I think you you look at the number of things where um, you know it's kind of binary whether uh, whether things are really good or really bad, whether it's North Korea, the possibility of trade wars, future deficits in the United States, the 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 range of of issues that have in the past made markets nervous. It seems that um, they're kind of treated as a new normal. You know, and on top of that, a world of political chaos. Right. Even political chaos used to make yes. markets nervous. So there's, to me, a, a, a kind of a, another shoe that you know, we, we won't know until one of the uncertain events turns in a bad direction. You know, they've had a lot of luck. So far, that that you know, there there you know, we in our first few years and for a long time, there was a crisis that kind of exploded that you just had to deal with, and you know the world is is like on the edge but not breaking through on most of those issues right now. The question is, what happens if one of those crises actually? Um, you know, switches from being potential to real. I'm not hoping for that. Sure. Like, I hope we go through but a it, continued period, but it's just defies... They really haven't had a lot of crises. They haven't had a lot of those external crises. Yeah. yeah. So I worry that, that the ebullience right now uh, reflects an almost um, an unnatural length of time between um, major external disruptive uh, events. So you think there's some fragility to... So uh, I worry about the fragility, yeah. yeah. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Jack Lou. But first, a word from our sponsor. A message from Morgan Stanley. Has alternative energy gone mainstream? Alternative energy, solar power investment, and utilities are taking what was on the fringes of science as recently as 30 years ago and turning it into the new normal. Biosphere 2, a massive science facility tucked away in the desert foothills of the Santa Catalina Mountains, was built for controversial space exploration experiments. Now, it functions as a mainstream research facility, studying the potential for farming beneath solar panels, a technique that's already applicable for future colonies on Mars. Morgan Stanley's podcast discusses where the renewable energy industry has been, its transformation over the past few decades, and what it means for investors in renewable energy technology, as well as everyday consumers. Hear the full podcast at morganstanley.com slash podcast and subscribe to the Morgan Stanley Ideas podcast. Morgan Stanley & Co. LLC. Member SIPC. All right, let's talk about the Republican tax plan uh, that passed the Congress, was signed into law by the president. I think you referred to it on Bloomberg TV as a ticking time bomb. Um, I wonder if you would tell us what you mean by that. Uh, what, what is the bomb that's going to explode from this tax bill? Well, the, the, the bomb that's going to explode uh, is that it spends an awful lot of money that we don't have. Uh, it was based on um, pretty far-fetched uh, economic theories uh, that it would pay for itself. Um, I don't know any serious economists who really believe that it will pay for itself. To their credit, there are some who supported the tax bill who said they thought a tax cut was important enough, like Marty Feldstein, uh, that you do it even if it doesn't pay Larry for itself. Larry for that matter. Yeah. But it doesn't pay for itself. And that means that we know there's at least $1.5 trillion or the neighborhood of $1.5 trillion on its face. But 
within this bill are all kinds of things that expire in some number of years, four years, five years, six years. So when the time comes for individual tax cuts, which expire while the corporate tax cuts uh, go on to be renewed, there'll be a lot of pressure to do that. Uh, Expensing in the first year, which maybe the most important element of the bill in terms of encouraging investment expires, the rate cuts continue. There'll be pressure to continue them. The costs are going to rise, not shrink, by the time we see what the full impact of this bill are. Now, the truth of the matter is, this was not the right time to spend trillions of dollars. It just wasn't. We, we're not, we're, the economy has been growing steadily. We're in the ninth year of a recovery. We've just had the 75th consecutive month of jobs growth. You know, when we needed to put more um, a foot to the pedal to get gas into the, the engine, we had a hard time convincing uh, Congress, which was in Republican hands, uh, to, to do more to keep the recovery going. Now's a time when the likelihood is that any benefit you get in terms of the macroeconomic stimulus will be offset by higher interest rates, and you're going to see just mountains of red ink. Now, how is that going to manifest itself? Well, you're, I believe you're going to see some not consistent views taken on uh, on the part of people who supported this tax bill. You know, they didn't care about the deficit two weeks ago, three weeks ago when they voted for this. But when they come back next year, they're already talking about putting on the chopping block programs for poor people, whether it's Medicaid or food stamps. Um, you're going to see attempts to limit how much can be spent on discretionary spending, which means education and infrastructure and all the things we need. I think that that's going to shortchange the future. So I think it's a ticking time bomb with multiple um, uh, layers of, of explosions. So do you think the deficit impact is really a feature, not a bug of this thing, that in fact they are fine with the uh, increased debt and deficit because it will give you give them a stronger argument to do the entitlement cuts that they want to do, the spending side that they want to cut, uh, they could say? Yeah, you know, look, look. I, I think the, they probably fall into multiple camps. Uh, there are some who um, have always thought that the way to shrink the size of government spending is to not have revenue to support what we need to do and to force the process of you know, starve the beast, it used to be called. Um, it, it is just a highly cynical approach to claim that a tax cut that's targeted towards global multinational businesses and the highest earning taxpayers to, to, to pay for that ultimately by coming back and proposing cutting things that go to the least fortunate, that is the most cynical strategy I can imagine. And very, very little in this bill does anything to help working people, middle-class people. And you look at the election just a year ago, just over a year ago, what was it about? It was about people worrying about were their jobs going to pay middle-class wages? Would their kids have the kinds of opportunities they need? This is not going to provide that. The kinds of things you need to provide that are education and training money, infrastructure spending, the things that we're not going to have the money right. to do. To take the other side and play devil's advocate on their arguments for the tax cut plan. I mean, they make the argument that we had an uncompetitive corporate tax rate. I know the Obama administration uh, tried to address that, obviously not going to 21, but uh, somewhat uh, higher on the corporate rate. But they say that this tax bill will do a couple of things. First, that it does give marginal rate cuts, at least in the first couple of years, to pretty much everybody, including working people, will have a lower tax bill. And that you will get an increase in productivity, which will drive higher wages uh, and ultimately faster economic growth, 
obviously the economy was growing when you guys left uh, after the Obama administration, but it was, you know, 2%. They think they can get to 3%, more productivity, higher wages. You think none of that will come true uh, based on, on this tax plan? I think that um, the economy, when we left a year ago, you know, was growing year on year, just over 2%. Um, there were quarters that were 3%. Sure, there were course. quarters that were lower. I don't know that that basic trajectory has changed. The fact that we see a couple of quarters at, in the neighborhood of 3% doesn't change the fundamental reality that potential GDP in the economy is limited by demographics and productivity. I don't see a lot in this tax bill that's going to drive uh, productivity in a, in a meaningful way. Um, we'll see. that. Yeah. But if it does, you're talking about small increments of growth, nowhere near enough to drive the kinds of um, results that are claimed by the supporters of the tax bill, and almost all of which can be offset if interest rates creep up even a little bit more. So if you ask me, will there be some short-term stimulative effect? Probably Mm -hmm. in in the very short term. I don't think it's going to uh, last very long, and I don't think um, it is uh, going to be worth the price in terms of what we pay when the deficits start ballooning. If the deficit starts to grow and interest rates start to creep up, and you have all we've seen what happens when deficits start to grow, and not just politics change, but investment attitudes change. So, you know, getting back to kind of your question on the on the you know, what would have been good, I was a big I am still an advocate of lowering the business tax rate. I thought that the, the, the idea that we were working on in a bipartisan way to lower the rate to in the mid-20s uh, by reducing loopholes and, and, and paying for what we did, that would have been a really good thing to do. The fact that this bill decided to go farther than you needed to, there's no magic between 25 and 21, but it racked up bills that they could only pay by driving a huge uh, wedge of debt. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they kind of offset the benefit of what they could have done for the economy. And it creates all kinds of problems, adding to inequality, when I think that is much more of a core problem in this country than the difference between a 21 and a 25% corporate tax right, rate. Right. And they also paid for it, at least in part, by adjusting the individual side on state and local income tax deductions. I mean, you're in a situation where People like me who live in New Jersey, those who live in uh, New York, Connecticut, California, are trying to figure out the impact of the d- smaller ability to uh, deduct state and local taxes and property taxes. And it, I mean, it seems to me in a way, and, and opponents of the bill make the argument that they kind of went after blue states in this way to fund uh, their corporate tax cuts. I mean, do you think they did that? And what did you make of kind of the individual side changes they made, uh, particularly as it pertains to the state and local tax deductions? Look, I, th- I think that the, the you know, limiting uh, state and local tax deductions to $10,000 clearly will affect um, states, you know, that have... Uh, uh, the characteristics you described. It's going to be the New Yorks and Californias, the New Jerseys, the Connecticuts. Um, I don't think people were lining up on December 30th and December 31st to try to prepay their property taxes because they thought this was a good thing. Yeah. It, I was among them. Yeah. It, it did, it's not making people feel more secure. You know, if one of the things you need is for consumers to feel more comfortable and that that helps buoy the economy, 
I don't know that taking away uh, state and local tax deductions and limiting people's ability to deduct uh, either medical or other expenses is, is going to is going to give people that that greater security. It certainly doesn't feel very fair at, at a time when um, you know the 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 tax rate at the very top at the last was lowered um, in a way to perhaps offset the impact of some of the curtailment of state and local tax deduction on the most wealthy. But what about people who are earning, you know, seventy-five dollars or $100,000 a year who are maybe going to get something modest for a year or two, and then they're going to see that their brackets are indexed in a way where they pay more taxes, their rate cuts expire unless Congress extends it and spends more money they don't have. It, it's not a, a, a picture of stable, predictable, secure uh, economic uh, planning. And I think, you know, I think middle class people and working people are going to look at this and say, I can get very much. Mm-hmm. And the winners are going to people who be, be people who um, already are winners. Uh, I don't think that was a good idea. I yeah. think it's bad for the country. And you think Democrats will be able to run against this in 2018? I mean, I, already it's stacking up as a pretty good midterm election for Democrats. If you look at just a generic yeah. ballot polling numbers and general dissatisfaction with Trump, and who knows, you know, that could change a little bit over the course of the year. But the tax bill is unpopular. Trump is unpopular. Republicans in Congress are really unpopular. Um, you think Democrats can you know, go to the polls and make the case that they're getting screwed by this tax bill, uh, and you should throw Republicans out of office. Yeah, look, I, I think um, the history of midterm elections um, should be cautionary to any first-term president. You know, I was in two administrations where the midterm elections were not great. You know, and and, and the intervening administration had the same experience. Um, that was without all of the added factors of the unpopularity of the the you know president. Um, you know, there's always some issue that people grumble about um, when it comes uh, time for the midterms. I think there's a little bit more to grumble about than normal. If you're a if you're a middle class American, if 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 you are relying on the Affordable Care Act uh, for your health insurance. And the changes that were tucked into the tax bill are going to make it harder for you to afford your health insurance. You know, the subsidies aren't going to go to middle class people who who see higher premiums uh, because of these changes. You know, I'm I'm a support making sure the people who are at the bottom end get the subsidies they need. But there are people who are going to be looking at their 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 bills and they're going to be going up. They're paying more uh, taxes net because of the loss of the deductions. Um, and, you know, our experience uh, in, in the Obama administration was that, uh, you know, the small tax cuts that individuals got um, were not, um, they, they didn't resonate that much with people. Um, you know, we had making work pay, uh, which it was a source of frustration that there was a real tax benefit that wasn't highly valued by voters. So I think there is a lot there for, uh, for Democrats to work with. You have to be able to make the case. You have to be willing to make the case. Um, you know, I think that the, the kind of chaos in government right now and the, the level of anxiety surrounding economic, foreign policy, direction of the country issues is different than I've ever seen it uh, before. So, you know, uh, we'll see whether the situation in November feels the way it does now. But I think there's a reason you have so many um, Republican members retiring 
And you're, you're seeing across the country interesting candidates on the Democratic side. Yeah. I know I'll get emails from Republicans listening to this saying, why didn't you challenge Jack Lew on the debt and deficit numbers since the deficit or the debt went from 10 trillion to 20 trillion under Obama? Like all of a sudden they care about an additional $1.5 trillion in debt. They didn't care so much when the debt was going up under their watch. So what's the response to that? Well, first, when we came into office, uh, the the deficit as a percentage of GDP was approaching 10%. When we left, it was 3%. So yes, there was a recession that was larger than any economic downturn since the Great Depression. Yes, we had to respond to that and did respond. Yes, revenues went down because of it. But we picked ourselves up and came back. And to get the deficit to 3% of GDP, to essentially be running what's called, you know, primary balance, where the only deficit we had could be attributed to payments of interest on the debt. It wasn't attributable to new spending. That was a dramatic change and an improvement. Um, you know, the, the, the decision to come in now and to, and to put in place an enormously expensive addition to the deficit um, is a very different choice. Um, you know, I, I liked to say that we left a stable economic situation so that whoever came in next would have basically 10 years to try and work through a long-term approach to dealing with the demographic issues that are real. Um, that is ultimately going to have to be done on a bipartisan basis. This tax bill being done on a purely partisan basis, driving the debt up as quickly as it does, is going to make it harder, not easier, to reach bipartisan agreement. I mean, any proposal now to reduce the deficit for the next period of time will be seen as paying for these tax cuts. Um, and, you know, it, 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 if that had been done for the purpose of a mutually embraced objective, and we'll talk about infrastructure in a few minutes, infrastructure would have been a mutually embraced objective, it wouldn't have that same character. Yeah. But the idea that we run the table to put our policies into place and now we're going to put everything you care about on the table to pay for it. That's not the way you put together a bipartisan conversations. I think they set back the efforts to actually deal with what responsible fiscal you know, policy experts would say you should deal with. Yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit about, before we end, we've got a little bit of time left, but I want to know, you're at Lindsey Goldberg now. What, what is that? What do you do? What is your post-White House life like? So I, I left the White House uh, on the, the, the last day, and I, actually the night before, I realized you probably couldn't get out of Washington the morning of January 20th, so I took a late train on the 19th. And um, I, I spent the first year uh, teaching at Columbia uh, and uh, Columbia University School of International Public Affairs, and I recently joined a private equity firm, Lindsey Goldberg, uh, and I'm continuing to on the faculty at Columbia. And it's a private equity firm that focuses on uh, family businesses uh, to partner uh, for long-term investments to build companies. And uh, I've been here just a brief period. Uh, so far, it is uh, feels like a, a, a very good uh, good place to be. Um, what do you think of your uh, successor, Stephen Mnuchin, in general, the job that he's done as Treasury Secretary? He's gotten in some... Um 
heat for, I want to ask you in particular about, there was that photo of Mnuchin with his wife holding up the big sheet of dollar bills. And she kind of had like a cartoon character look about her and got a lot of criticism for it. But, you know, he just signed, he had the first dollars had his signature on him. I remember there was a big deal about you're fixing your signature so it could go on the dollar. Like, um, do you think that was a big screw up by him to, to do that or no? You know, I've, I've made it my business not to comment uh, on my successor. I, I chose when I went to the same thing to go with my, uh, my wife, my children and my grandchildren, and it was a pretty exciting moment, uh, right. but it didn't create a lot of news. Right. Well, maybe because you didn't have a photo released, or maybe did you hold up a sheet of dollar bills for a uh, photo op um, when you first had your signature on the currency? I actually don't remember. You don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, last question is kind of what you worry about the most. We, we dealt with some of this on the market, kind of underpricing possibly the, the risks that the Trump administration could face in 2018. But when you think about risk of the market. You spent a lot of time as Treasury Secretary, obviously considering, you know, what could throw markets and the dollar and uh, general, you know, the economy into crisis. Like right now, when you think about it, what do you worry about in 2018? Is it is it North Korea? Is it a trade war? What would keep you up at night if you were? Well, let let me start with the positive. I think that, you know, with um, the U.S. continuing what is now a long period of recovery, with Europe doing better finally, um, you know, with Asia doing, you know, okay, Japan kind of outperforming uh, short-term potential GDP and China for the moment stabilizing. I can come up with a pretty happy news, you know, report on where the economy is now. I can also point to risks where if any one of them were to kind of unwind in a bad way, um, nobody knows exactly what comes next, whether it's, you know, North Korea. I mean, it is... I hope still a very low probability risk, but it is a very high impact risk. So, you know, it, it's not it, 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 in my professional life, in my life, we haven't had a serious a level of, you know, concern, you know, about nuclear conflict. And, um, you know, you, you look to trade. If it goes from kind of a war of words to a trade war, that could have a very negative impact on the global economy. Um, you know, you look at, you know, the, the, you know even the, the, the policy on Iran. I mean, how the president and the administration handle and Congress handle that will have a lot to do with the U.S. role in the world. I mean, it, it will be a bad thing if we are seen as having broken an agreement with Iran when Iran has been in compliance with the agreement. And that has to be balanced against all the other things going on, uh, you know, right now. In China, you know, there's, um, you know, I think we have, we, we're seeing less effective pressure being put on China now than any time in, in recent history. You know, China is moving into, into opportunities that are created by the absence of the U.S. being there. Um, my observation over a number of years is that, you know, where we were helped to kind of set the path that China thought was was the right short-term place for them to be. If we're not there, they're, you know, they're, they're going to look to maximize what they see as their opportunity. Well, I don't know what that means, you know. Does that mean they continue with the reform agenda or do they pull back from it? Does the desire for control trump the desire for uh, more efficiency. Um, does it have China 
dealing with its multilateral relationships in the same way that it has done a lot of its bilateral um, uh, commercial uh, engagements, which have not been, you know, a, a purely a success story uh, in terms of a lot of parts of the world. You know, I I, I think uh, how that, that all goes has a lot to do with what China's growth will ultimately be and whether or not China can sustain, you know, stable growth for the long term. You know, I always thought the U.S. was actually helping China by pressing on market reforms and opening up the economy because China needs to stay in, the, in, in, in a robust, not double-digit growth rate, but a, a good growth rate not just for China, but for the global economy. So the U.S. stepping away and having less influence on that just creates, I think, more risk that, that things kind of wander there. Um, not that we could control it or decide for China. So there's just a lot of things uh, you know, going on in the world uh, today that, um, that are um, you know, you know, consequential. Um, I hope that if we were to talk a year or two or three from now, um, as I'm sure the we will, nothing bad has happened. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that it is, in my view, a time when you ought to be focusing on fundamentals and making sure that, you know, you, you look at, at the kind of um, rage over, over Bitcoin values. I don't consider that a necessarily great sign of, of you know, kind of, I don't either. Yeah. I mean, frankly, we did a whole podcast on it, and I was not convinced that it was anything other than uh, pure yeah. speculation. And right, kind of. but but um, but it, it, it's one thing if it's just one kind of esoteric mm -hmm. fad. Um, if it becomes a broader phenomenon, um, that 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 becomes worrisome. Yeah. All right. Last thing for you, and I forgot to ask it before when we're talking about Trump and the economy and his taking credit. I just wonder if it drives you nuts that during the campaign he said the unemployment rate was phony and the real rate was like forty two percent, and then he goes, uh, it gets into office and the same trend on unemployment continues, and you know we're at four point one percent. He says the greatest thing in the world now it's real. Like does that kind of thing make you crazy? You know, I'll tell you what makes me crazier. Uh, describing uh, the economy that he inherited as being, you know, as if he had come in when we did in 2009. I mean, you described that, it as an American hellscape at the, yeah. or not the hellscape, what was it? American carnage. American was, carnage. I mean, it was, that, that, I mean, you know, I give political figures of all stripes some license in terms of changing their view of things on a on a on a basis of convenience but um you know he 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 inherited a strong economy um you know I'll, i as i said earlier think that you know the promise of tax cuts probably at least sure. in terms of the market has contributed but um but Fundamentally, we have the same economy now that we had a year ago and two years ago, and that's because of the work we did. And to have turned the work of our administration into the foil against which everything uh, is, is compared and, 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 and the, the past has to be attacked, you know, that, that, I find that more more troubling. It was sort of hard to recognize the America that he was talking about in that inaugural speech. I mean, it was one of the stranger moments of my life watching that. I mean, not that there aren't problems in the economy and there are hollowed out communities and manufacturing and all of that, but it did seem like, you know, we had this eight years of Obama and things were pretty good at, at the end of it and low unemployment and, and growth. And then we get this new president who comes in and describes America as basically a hellhole. I mean, it, 
I don't know. What did you think about that, watching that or listening to that speech? I mean, maybe you didn't Look, watch it. I, 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 I think that there is a fair critique that, um, you know, we need to pay more attention to the people who are being disrupted by change, whether it's, you know, technology or globalization or trade. And I don't think that it is an attractive thing if, you know, anyone ignores that hurt as if it's not real. That doesn't give you license to create a mythology about the country being completely um, in a state of ruin. Um, and I don't think it helps to solve those problems to create uh, a, a, an inaccurate uh, portrait of what is the current situation or what the causes are. Um, you know, if, if this is going to probably sound a bit unrealistic given where we sit today, but what we need to have is a bipartisan conversation about how do you deal with some of these things? How do you deal with the need for retraining workers and making sure young people are educated with the skills for the 21st century? How do you deal with long-term demographics so that you don't have to have this kind of sort of Damocles hanging over your head? Um, uh, these are not the kinds of things that can be done in a hyper-partisan world. I don't think we're going to get back to that in the next few days. It's not as if, you know, January 2018 is the ideal moment for that. But if the 2016 and 2018 elections are put us in a place where there's more people coming in in the middle um, who want to talk about uh, how do you solve problems in a way where you work together— that would be a good thing for the country. I'm not necessarily predicting it, uh, but it would be a good thing for the country. Well, hope springs eternal. Jack Lou, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it, and I uh, hope you'll join us again. Thank you, Ben. And that's a wrap for this week's podcast. We'd like to thank Treasury Secretary Jack Lou for joining us, uh, all of you for listening. I'd like to thank my producer, Bridget Mulcahy. And, of course, if you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Rate us and write a written review, and we will be back with you next week.